0: Since this is <coughs> since this is my first uh, official Sunday at Hope Gateway, I thought I would just uh, take a moment and introduce myself. Right, but before I do that, <laughs> thank you, Alan. Um, before I, before I do that, we've been talking about uh, the faith-filled what it means to take adventures and risks in our lives. So we wanted to share with you a story from a member of our own community. And who took a risk and tells us what happened?
1: So, the biggest risk I took uh, was very exciting and as difficult a thing as I've ever done. When I tell the story, I always say that I have multiple degrees and credentials and five children, and I am as proud of being the main guy as anything I've ever done in my life. Part of that is the training. Obviously, kayaking. I, I have my main guy in sea kayaking um, and doing the kayaking training, which I had done as a teenager, but I did not like the Eskimo role, which is mm-hmm. being the kayak. So I've done more canoeing. But when I wanted to become a main guy, I had to do this. So I studied it and learned about it, as you do with, in theory, and then I had to do it in actuality. And we went to a swimming pool a swimming pool, mind you, with a probably 14-foot kayak and swimming pool, two of them. And we did all kinds of strokes and rescues and all kinds of things. I had literally made awake at night for nights on end being in panic about doing the wet rescue, the wet exit. Because you have to know, I'm asthmatic and claustrophobic. And the wet exit is deliberately, when you're training, turning your kayak upside down and getting out. Now, you have a spray skirt to which you are attached to the kayak. So, the moment came when I, I had to do this, I put it off too long. I'm in the swimming pool, taking deep breaths, meditating, praying, drawing on everything I have, and thinking. One of my advantages is, I can do all things through Christ's Christ. me." Uh, and, and then I got laughing at myself because a colleague is beside me here, the trainer is here, and there are two lifeguards over here. And they're not going to be drown. So the hardest thing I ever did was intentionally flip this kayak over. Now what you're supposed to do is to tuck your body, pull on the cord to release the spray skirt, and push off. I have no memory of doing any of this. I just know that somehow, while I was hanging outside I don't I was thinking, "Maybe i you can Next thing know, popped up. I had to do it again. I did it twice. I came home from that experience and said to my husband, I was proud of doing that than anything I've ever done in my life because it was so terrifying. I'm very glad I did. I spent four days out to sea on a kayak, obviously can on islands. And this was part of my training. And I was working really hard on the sweep stroke, and I could feel the moment when I knew I was going to tip and I couldn't counterbalance, the balance, and I went over. The standing air temperature was 48 degrees, the wind was blowing, the ocean the first week of May was 38 degrees. I had no idea if I did the tuck. Pull and push, but somehow I came up after having thought, the trainers is not going to let me down, they're not going to let me down. I popped up and I made it. There's a whole bunch of other stories to go with that, but I am as proud of being a main guide as anything I've ever done, and that's the point where I'm most proud, because I faced my fears and I drew on every resource I had, and I had community who helped me, and I am It was hard. It was extraordinarily difficult and extraordinarily empowering. Thank you.
0: For sharing that story with us, Linda, and so just 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 for our information that if your kayak flips over, you tuck, pop, pull, pull pull, pull the thing. All right, and just remember that the trainers won't let you drown. (laughs) So I'm gonna. So as I was saying before, um, this is my. uh, since this is my first official Sunday here, I thought I would take a second to introduce myself. My name is Ben Yashu Davis. I live on a Norman Rockwell painting of a 1950 small town, also known as Shabik Island, Maine, booming metropolis of 350 people, where we actually have had real-life people, real-life neighbors, come and knock on our door and ask for a cup of beer. I live there with my wife Melissa and my son, of eight and a half weeks old, Michael, who, in my completely unbiased uh, opinion, is the most beautiful boy in the world. You also might want to know about me um, is that I'm a hardcore geek. Um, I'm a hardcore geek. I, uh, I I have a Marvel digital comics subscription. I go to all the superhero movies. I play board games that look like this on the simpler end. And uh, matter of fact, just yesterday, we had a group of uh, friends out on the island, David and Christina, ventured out there among other folks, and uh, we played games together, and we watched one of my favorite movies, uh, Fellowship of the Ring from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Do we have any other uh, people who are fans of the Lord of the Rings? Okay, good, 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 We've got to, we've got to start. Now, for any of you who have not heard uh, the good news according to J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, *The Lord of the Rings* is this trilogy that was written many decades ago, and it's about this group of uh, a group of people called the Hobbits, these diminutive creatures who lived in a quiet corner of Middle Earth called the Shire. When unexpectedly, they are called with a group of people representing the other races who are part of Middle Earth. To go and destroy the one ring, the ring of power which corrupts anyone who wears it by throwing it in the fiery chasm of Mount Doom so that the Dark Lord Sauron cannot reclaim it and thereby conquer the world. Um, when I was twelve, I found this all really, really exciting because you have magic swords and great battles, and you're traveling through caverns, and there are elves, and it's just it's great times. But even now, now that I'm a little I'm a little older than twelve,
1: uh,
0: yes, in case you hadn't noticed, um, that uh, I, one of the things I've really grown to appreciate about this, this story is how Tolkien takes these soft, naive, sheltered, complacent hobbits and throws them in, into settings where they have to discover resources in themselves that they never thought were possible. He just pushes them beyond their farthest horizons. And during this time, it's not just they discover resources within themselves, but they discover resources they become a community on adventure, really learning what it means to stick together when times are tough. And as a result, by the end of the trilogy, are a completely different set of characters than the ones we first meet.
1: So today, we're going
0: to talk about a different type of community on adventure. This one comes from the book of Acts, and it is uh, the first story we have of the church. This is literally after, right after Pentecost, how those early Jesus followers decided to organize themselves in the day-to-day life of their community. And I invite you, as you hear this passage this morning, to consider, how does this describe or not describe the way I relate to my community of faith? So, hear these words from the second chapter of Acts, the 42nd through the 47th verses. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship So, as we begin this morning, we talk about drawing, uh, drawing a circle. So, I have a little uh, exercise for which I need six hardy volunteers to come up front.
1: All
0: right. Yep, yeah, just come up, come up front. Don't be scared. There is no interpretive dancing involved.
1: <laughs> no kayaking.
0: No kayaking. Okay, that's good. We'll even take some non-hardy volunteers. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we got four,
1: two more. All right.
0: (laughs) Very good. So, I'd like you all to make a circle. No, I'm not. not, That's a good question. All right, Um, is there another way you can make a circle? (laughs) There we go. Is there another way you can make a circle? (laughs)
1: We <laughs> Oh yeah, we could we, we could go sideways. This is good. Okay, <laughs> Is there another
0: way? You could make oh, a circle. This, this is too hard. Anything else you <laughs> can do uh, like, you can make a bigger circle? That's right. I noticed you're holding your hands out. Is there something you're to
1: try to stay within a circle.
0: To so try to stay within a circle. That's good. That's good. Okay. Thank you very much. I <laughs> will right, give these folks a round of applause. There you go. So, um, so what we saw uh, right there is actually an example of what it means to be the church together on adventure. I'd like you to notice when, when I asked them to form a circle, which direction did they, uh, which direction did they face? inward, right? It would be really weird if someone said, make a circle and everyone face outward, right? This is a natural thing for us to do in life. It's true in sports. If a group of athletes forms a tight, inward-facing circle, we call it a uh, huddle. That's right. It actually isn't a true often in our churches. We form these little holy huddles together. Now, what is a huddle good for? How can it be useful? Communication. Communication, right? You can see and hear everyone feeling
1: connected.
0: Feeling connected to one another. you got your arms around each other. It's a, very, it's a very nice, touching moment. Encouragement. Encouragement, right. You can hear other people. You can get each other pumped up.
1: Staying warm. Staying warm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is important. Uh, this is important, especially in especially in Maine, during the winter. Anything else? Other people
1: can't hear what you're saying. That's right. There's a level
0: of privacy and security and secrecy. Who knows what goes on in those levels? For all we know, they're talking about their grocery shop. But there are some limitations to the huddle as well. What are some of those? It's exclusionary. It's exclusionary. Say a little more. Why is it exclusionary? Well, we're defining who's in and everybody else is out. Right. And it would be kind of hard for you to even know whether anyone wanted to join you, right, if you're all packed in like that. What else?
1: You can't get any information from outside. You just limited.
0: That's right. I mean, you look at them, none of them can really see what's going on beyond that that little circle, right? One of the ways I think about the limitation of the huddle is um, imagine if, uh, so Tom Brady's bringing the Patriots offense out during their season opener on Sunday night football, and he goes and he gets the offense huddled, huddled together, and the play clock's running down and he just keeps them in the huddle. And mind you, it's an awesome huddle, they're having a great time in the huddle, the play clock runs down, what will happen? They'll move back on the field. Now, if they just stayed in the huddle the entire game, is there any possible way they could win? No, no not, a, no, not really, because the point isn't what happens in the huddle, it's what happens where? Out, that's right, out on the field. Uh, anthropologist Victor Turner discovered, in fact, that it wasn't just the important things that happened out in the field. But that deep community more often happened when people were out on the edges, out in the field, kind of at the edges of their lived experience, rather than when they were huddling together. And he coined a term for this type of community, the type of community that faces outwards, that travels to the edge of people's lived experience. He called it communitas, and Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch describe um, Victor Turner's description of communitas this way. And see if this sounds familiar to you if you think about your own life. Participants experience an almost mystical togetherness that occurs only among a group of people engaging in a task bigger than itself. A different genre of love emerges. People get to need each other. They get to know and rely on each other. I think that many of us at one point or another have had a moment in our lives, even if it was a short moment, where we went on an adventure, took a risk, and experienced community toss. What might be one of those moments for you?
1: Go and Absolutely. Can you
0: see that's experience where you take all these people who are in their kind of their comfort zone and then you send them way out? To another place, to another country, to another culture, to do service with those who are on the very margins of our global economy. And it's an amazing sort of community that forms with that. Yeah, In yeah. God's so God's form. yeah. like Mission trips are a great place that that happens. Where else?
1: Backpacking trip.
0: Yep. Backpacking trip. Again, leaving your place. Literally going out into the wilderness <coughs> together for a journey and adventure.
1: Demonstrating more in
0: cost than yes. And in fact, I, one of the places I've heard it the most are those who are actively involved in the civil rights movement, and they talk about the community and a sense of purpose that uh, infused what they were doing as they were united around a common cause, often with some danger and risk and social cost involved. I know one for me, is every year I went to a music theater camp at Camp Mechawana, and it was very much this experience of communitas, because we came in on Sunday afternoon, and by Friday, by Friday evening, we had to have a full (laughs) length. Broadway musical memorized, memorized, sets-constructed, choreography done for hundreds and hundreds of parents and friends. And believe me, during that week, we would do crazy things together. We would skip meals, we would rehearse until midnight. Patsy is nodding because she was part of that experience. Um, And while it was an incredible, it's amazing to think about, like, you know, you'd work these 16-hour days, you'd hardly sleep, and then you'd be like, yes, I can't wait until next year. (laughs) And, but it was about that experience of a community that we had together. Now, another example of communitas that we heard this morning was this community that formed around following Jesus uh, right after the church was born in Acts 2. And it might not be apparent immediately apparent to us, um, buried as it is under 2,000 years of cultural dust. One of the things that this passage emphasizes is that Christians participated in the breaking of the bread. Um, and in fact, it says they, they, they practiced the breaking of the bread. And, and in case we've forgotten that, that was important, a couple verses later, they again say, oh, and by the way, they broke bread in each other's homes. Now, this was a radical social practice, one that put the community right on the very edges of the social margins. Because who you broke bread with was really, really, really important. In Greco-Roman society, there was very much there was class segregation. And there were only certain ways that people in different socioeconomic classes relate to one another. So, for instance, if you were part of the nobility or an up-and-coming Roman citizen, um, you couldn't just go out to coffee with a day laborer who was working in your household. Not only would that be considered scandalous, it might be caused to get you disowned from your family. One of the places that this really came out was around the meal, because in the places where people did mix, you always had to make sure that everyone knew what class they belonged in. And so these meals were often delineated by what the class you were in would determine what sort of food you ate, where you sat at the table down to chair placement, who served what, who ate when, what who ate what when. Um, it, was a, it was a very delineated sort of thing. And so when Christians immediately begin breaking the bread, what they're doing is erasing all the social divides that make people respectable Greco Roman citizens. Um, They're putting everyone at an equal playing field, men and women, Jews and Greek citizens and non-citizens, slaves and free, rich and poor, all eating at the same table, eating the same food at the same time, practicing radical equality together. What this meant is that when you followed Jesus, you made the decision to follow Jesus right in those early days when the church was born, it immediately meant that you were traveling out to the edges of what was considered socially acceptable. In your culture, and giving up your right to stability <clears throat> or respectability. In other words, deep community very rarely emerges. I think, and I think both our scripture passage and, and Victor Turner would agree on this. Deep community rarely emerges from a place of safety and respectability and stability. In order to experience communitas, we have to travel where? Yeah. Out to the edges. It's when we're on a journey together, facing outwards to our spiritual horizons, open to the next adventure that God has in store for us, and especially when that adventure involves some risk, maybe some pain, definitely some sacrifice. That's when community us happens. Now you notice that when this group of people came up front and they formed a circle, what did they eventually do with their hands? they join us, right? This is a this is a really common practice, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons sometimes those of us who've been a uh, part of church culture for a while can be considered touchy-feely as you get a group of people in a circle, and all of a sudden you look down and people are strangers on time, are holding hands with you. Um, but, but this is actually really important for community, because if we're going to take on the faith of the leap if we're going to put ourselves out there, if we're going to take a risk, then first of all, we know we can't do it on our own because the Lone Ranger is a cultural myth. Rarely have there been people who have taken risks all on their own and succeeded under their own power. It generally doesn't happen. But secondly, if if we're going out on an adventure together, there are certain types of people who we want to be adventuring with us, and we want a certain type of community, right? So what do we need from other people when we're out on a spiritual adventure? Trust, right? You gotta know that other people really have your back and not just when it's convenient for them. What else?
1: Honesty.
0: Honesty, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You need folks who will encourage you out of a deep place of truth and also help correct you if you go off on the wrong path. What else? Vulnerability. Vulnerability, absolutely. Because going out on the edge always involves opening parts of ourselves that we might otherwise want to have remained closed. What else? (coughs) Compassion. Compassion. That's right, people who will stick with us even when we're in pain or even when we mess up. This was the type of community that developed among those early, early followers of Jesus. It talks about in this passage, they were all together and had all things in common, and if someone in the community was in need, what would everyone else do?
1: Share.
0: They would do more than share
1: sell what they had in order to support Right. Yeah, they
0: would would sell what they had, and and oftentimes I think that was probably pretty substantial to help the other person out. I don't know about you, but that was always the part of the passage that made me feel the least comfortable. Um, And this was because back in this time, family was more than just those people you had awkward Thanksgiving with once a year. These were the people who made sure that you were safe, had a place to sleep, provided your economic security, it was the way you advanced in the world. And so, when you decided to follow Jesus, you literally joined a new family, and people looked at you as as family members, responsible not just for making sure that there was someone there to take you out to coffee or that you had a good time on Sunday morning, but if you needed a job, they would find one. If you were in debt, they would help make sure that you got out of debt. If you were homeless, they would give you a place to sleep. If you were hungry, they they would give you something to eat. If you were in danger, they would take you under their roof and protect you, they would go with you to the end of the line not because they thought you were particularly special compared to everyone else, but because that was just the normal thing the followers of Jesus did for one another. In other words, Community on Adventure is not about a nice, safe, how's the weather type of community. It's about a place where, where especially for those early Christians, they would turn over the rhythms and priorities of their life to so a community and a mission that was bigger than them and then invite you to do the same. I remember when I experienced this, um, when I was planning a church with Melissa in Haverhill, Massachusetts, and we were way, way, way out on the edge. We had no money, no one was paying us to do this work, we didn't know anyone in the city, and we were trying to find a new way of being church, one that didn't involve weekly worship or a building, but was really just about... Going out to the spiritual and economic margins of our community, and loving the way that we thought Jesus would and seeing what happened. So, about a year into this, we had a, collected a really weird group of people who were meeting for a, for dinner and Bible study and prayer and service at our home once a week, and it, and it was it was really it was a it was a, it was an odd group to have gathered in one's living room. There were seeking, doubting agnostics and demi-fundamentalists. There were middle-class, successful career mainliners who were kind of burnt out on traditional expressions of religion. And people who had just been out of prison a couple years, and people in recovery, and folks who had been marginalized because of their sexual orientation. All getting together, trying to figure out what it meant to love God and love one another and love this city that for some reason God had planted all of us in. And so we were sitting around one day, and we were talking about what does it mean for us to be the church together. And um, and Derek, who is a who is one of our friends who had just gotten out of just gotten out of prison and was early in his recovery, said, "Yeah." He said, looking around at the group, he said, "You know, if I had met any of you before this, and I would walked by you on the street, I wouldn't have even said hello." Scott nodded his head. Scott was our, our friend, he he's this artsy for He's like, not only would I not have said said hello. If I had seen you all before this, I would have gone and walked on the other side of the street. (laughs) Yeah, Derek said, but now, because of this, we're friends. No, said Scott. We're not just friends. We're family. We're not just friends. We're family. That's Communitas—that's community out on an adventure, an adventure together, united around a purpose so great that it becomes us for the community, not the community for us. Now I have a question for those of you who (coughs) brave volunteers who came up front. So say if you had all come up front, and then Evelyn had walked up front and was forming a circle and kind of looked expectantly at you, what would you have done? What?
1: Open the circle. Open the circle. Draw the circle
0: wide. Draw the circle wide. <laughs> we have listen to what we just sang and draw the circle wide. Yes. Um, this is the other important part of what it means to be community on an adventure together. It's not just open, it's positively magnetic. We see this in the scripture passage where you have this bunch of weird people who are not respectable out on the edges of, of, of their society. And not only, uh, and not only were, were people kind of okay with what they were doing, many people were actively drawn in just because of the power of their lived experience. And in fact, if you read the early critics of the church, the early critics of the early church, they go on these long diatribes, and at the end they say, but see how they love each other. I wonder if the uh, critics of the church today say the same thing about <laughs> us. It's this intense experience of communitas, of community that is on adventure together. It means that we never exclude people from the circle, but there's always room for one more person to join the adventure, no matter who it might be. So what does it mean to have communitas to be on adventure together? A circle, facing outwards, holding hands, with always room for one How many of you, in your hearts, have longed for a community like this at some point in your life? That longing signals both the promise and the challenge of the faith of the week. The promise is that this is who we are as a people. God has written communitas into our very spiritual DNA, down to our very deepest roots. There is nothing more normal than for the people of God to shape the rhythms and priorities of their lives around each other and around a call that is greater than they are. This is who God has made us as a church, as Hope Gateway to be, down to the very last particle of our being. And if that is the promise that is held out to us, then the challenge is that our ability to be communities for one another is directly predicated on our willingness to go on an adventure together. So, I'd like to offer you a question to reflect on this coming week. If you consider Hope Gateway to be your spiritual home, what is it for you? Community? or ties. Is this just a place where you come to be sheltered and fed? Or is this a place that is also deeply calling you out of your sight to shape the rhythms and priorities of your life around a call that is greater than you? Are? What does it mean to take on the faith of the leap As a church? A circle? facing outwards? Hands together? always room for one more. I'm Amen. Amen. Communion.